Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, you guys ready to study the Word? Good, good, good. Let's get into it. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew 21 as you're turning there. We've been working through the book of Matthew since January 1st or the beginning of January. We're in chapter 21 today. This is what's referred to as the triumphal entry. It's also referred to as Palm Sunday. It's the final week of Jesus's ministry. So he's entering into Jerusalem this final week leading up to his arrest, uh, his crucifixion, his resurrection. And from this point, Matthew 21 through Matthew 28, it includes a bunch of parables and moments and teachings and demonstrations of power and everything that essentially his ministry has been building up is gonna take place over the next few chapters. So there's been a lot of uh, emotions and tension building over the time. A lot of Jesus saying, you know, doing miracles and works and then saying, well, don't tell anybody because uh, my time's not yet, just hold on. Well, all that is off the table now because he's in Jerusalem, this is the final week. And as people start proclaiming, yeah, you're the king, he's, he's not saying, well, no, I'm not. He's affirming that. And he's letting people openly proclaim he is who he says he is. And it's building a lot of tension with the religious people because they, they can sense that they're losing power. And not just power within the religious sense that uh, I, I don't get to have power as far as a priest, but there is a very delicate balance uh, going on right now uh, in the first century between the nation of Israel and Rome. Rome is occupying the country and they are essentially letting Israel do what they want but they're still kind of controlled with puppet strings. So as long as there's no uprising, as long as there's no people running around saying they wanna overthrow Caesar, then you can keep doing what you wanna do and we won't bother you too much. We'll tax you into oblivion, but we won't bother you too much other than that. And now you got Jesus coming in. He's proclaiming some pretty bold things and what's happening is the power structure within the, the, the religious people, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're starting to see some issues because it's gonna upset the power structure they have, they're not gonna have as much authority and it's also gonna upset this delicate balance they have with Rome. And we see this really profoundly in Matthew 21 when Jesus rides into a donkey and everyone's proclaiming his, him as king. So let's read that. Most of us, most of us are probably familiar with this story. Uh, so it's kind of a, a little bit of a refresher. Uh, but this is typically what's read and talked about on um, Palm Sunday, uh, but we do things a little different around here, so that's already passed. Matthew 21, verse one. It says, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. Now why two? Because the colt was really, really young, and it needs to have its mom around her, around it to feel comfortable. So you've actually got two donkeys here, but the little one is the colt, and the mom is with it to kind of keep it comfortable. For those of you really into ge geography, we've talked over the last two weeks about Jesus crossing over the Jordan and then heading through Jericho and then up to Jerusalem. I did a little study this week, and I found it interesting that Jericho is actually at like minus 700 feet below sea level, and where Jesus is entering up into Jerusalem as Mount of Olives, it's like 
like 2,600 feet above sea level. So the point at which he's walking here, he's essentially walking up a hill. So if you're reading the story and you're getting a mindset, I want you to kind of picture a very <laughs> desert-like place with lots of rocks, lots of dirt. There's some like you know foliage popping up every now and then, but it is very much a sense that it feels like it's in the middle of a desert and it's up a hill. This journey Jesus is walking is Man, it's, it's up quite a steep hill. So all those kind of things are in our mind as we're reading verse three. It says, if anyone says anything to you when you go into the town to ask for the donkey, tell them the Lord needs it and he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill which was what was spoken by the prophet, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Okay, now that specific prophecy dates all the way back to Zechariah. And so what we're seeing here is the idea that from many, many years past, this moment was already set up in the heart of God. This had already been ordained. There had already been a donkey that had been born that God had ordained. This is the one my son's gonna ride in on. All of this had already been orchestrated and put into place at the proper time to the point where Jesus says, go and ask for it. And if they ask you what it's for, just tell them it's for me. And they're gonna say yes, because this moment in time has been set all the way back from the prophet. And the reason why I'm doing this, I'm not riding in on a white horse, is because I'm saying something very profound about riding on a donkey, riding on a beast of burden. So in verse six, the disciples went and they did as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And so what's happening is you've got them walking up this hill, and the crowd, some of the crowd had been following Jesus all the way from Galilee. Some of the crowd started gathering in Jerusalem, but this massive crowd starts gathering as Jesus is walking in, and they're doing these, these um, acts of uh, affirmation where they're, they're, throwing, they're, they're taking their cloaks off and they're laying them on the ground um, as a way to say, man, you're the king, like we're, we affirm you. They're waving palm branches. Now, all of these things are wrapped in symbolism, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but they're affirming that Jesus is some kind of king, just not the king that they think. Verse nine, the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, well, this is the prophet Jesus. Well, he's more than that. He's not just a prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. So I want you, before we get into the symbolism here, I want you to think for a moment what we were talking about in Matthew chapter 20. Jesus, uh, that entire chapter, the last one we studied last week, was all about this idea of the first being last and last being first. This idea that really in the kingdom of God, the thing that is valued most is servanthood. And so to symbolize that, Jesus says, I'm gonna ride into town as the king but I'm gonna do it on the back of a donkey, an animal that is symbolic among my people as a beast of burden, an animal who takes on the burdens of others, an animal who carries the weight for other people. You see what he's saying in this? He's riding in and he's saying, I'm here, I'm your king, and I'm here to conquer, but not conquer the thing that you think, Because every little Jewish boy and little Jewish girl grew up 
anticipating the coming king, but they had built up in their mind these stories that, man, he's gonna ride in like the great King David of old. He's gonna ride in on a white horse and he's gonna give it to the enemy. He's gonna usurp them, he's gonna take the throne from them and he's gonna ride and he's gonna sit on the throne and it's gonna be like it was in the days of Solomon. There's gonna be peace because our king is gonna rule on earth. Not a single one of them, it didn't dawn on a single one of them that maybe, just maybe, that the king who was coming in to conquer wasn't conquering Rome, he was conquering an enemy who was worse than Rome. The sin that resided in the hearts of the people. And so what you have here is a group of people shouting, yes, you're our king, but you're our king my way. You're my kind of king. You're the kind of king that I want, that I grew up thinking about, and you're finally here. It is weird that you're on a donkey, and I don't see that you have a sword, but I'm gonna excuse that because you're the man. And Jesus is riding in, proclaiming all these things without saying a word, and everybody's missing it, and there's this huge disconnect. Because in the heart of Israel and in the heart of people today, there's always a disconnect between what we think he's up to and what he's actually up to. We are convinced that the thing he needs to conquer and the thing he needs to overcome is, is this outward thing. There's, 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 the, there's, there's this addiction that I need overcoming. And Lord, I need you to fix this issue. And if you just come in like a righteous king and just destroy this thing, and it doesn't even dawn on us that, that the issue is not that thing. It's, it's actually much deeper. There's a reason why that thing pulls your affections. Because you've got a heart that wants something other than him. And so he's coming in as a king to sit first on the throne of your hearts before he ever sits on the throne in Jerusalem. And so what we're seeing here is a massive disconnect between the way that Israel was brought up to think about Jesus and the way Jesus is here to actually rule and reign. And it's no different. We're, the, just because this is a long time ago doesn't mean that we're not guilty of the same things today. Many of us have grown up in the culture of church being taught that this is the coming, this is the Jesus and here's what he's here to do for you and here's how he's gonna save you and change some things and here's what he's gonna do for you. And it's never even dawned on us that, that the whole relationship has shifted. He, he's not here to do things for you. He's here to redeem you so that you can join him in his kingdom. That he's not, he didn't ride in on a white horse so that he can come and start conquering your, 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 your giants and giving you the best life. Now he's coming in to, to free you from the slavery of sin so that you can now be free to join his kingdom and build his work. And he's saying, now you're free and you're part of my family. Come join me in building my father's house. Well, but I thought that this was the thing that you thought was really important. No, no, no I never said that was important. You said that was important. Some pastor told you that was important. Some online preacher told you that was important. Some book that sold a million copies told you that was important, but I didn't tell you that was important. Well, how do we know the difference? That's why we have this. Because this tells us the difference. So we've got a, no a nation of Israel who's looking at this coming king riding in, and there's a disconnect between what's happening and who he, is, he actually is, and what he wants to do. So let's go to verse 12. So at this point, he comes into town, and what is the first thing he does? There's a massive disconnect between Israel, but he comes into town, what's the first thing he does? He goes into the temple. Now what is the temple? The temple was the structure at the time where all Jewish worship took place. 
It started as a little tiny tent in the wilderness back in the book of Exodus with Moses. It was called a tabernacle. And inside it was the Ark of the Covenant. Remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? That little box, you open it and the Nazis get their face melted off. It's that box. So the box is in this tent, but it's not the only piece of furniture. It's the holiest piece of furniture and it symbolizes God's presence. But there's other pieces of furniture there's a, there's a, um, there's a candlestick, there's a little place where, where incense is burned and it fills the whole place with smoke. There's a, a table full of bread, there's a wash bowl, there's a place where you make sacrifices. It's a whole thing. And it started as a tent and a tabernacle in the wilderness. And when Solomon becomes king, he builds an entire temple and he takes the model of this tent and he just blows it up on a grand scale. And it's this actually this huge marble building. It's beautiful. A nation, people from all around the world will come just to see this beautiful building. Well, eventually Babylon conquered them, burned it to the ground. And when they were eventually released after seven years of captivity, they started rebuilding it. It wasn't as pretty as the one before, but it was nice. And this is the one that was standing when Jesus shows up. So when he walks into the temple, that's what he's walking up to. This is the place of worship for the Jews. So he, runs into, he walks into town on the back of a donkey. He rides into town on the back of a donkey. And the first place he goes to the temple, verse 12, he enters the temple and he drives out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. This is probably my favorite picture of Jesus. Right? I love this. I just imagine him just walking in and just flipping tables. That's my king, flipping tables. You know, but he's kind with the doves, so he like, he gently opens the cages and he lets the doves fly, but then he's flipping tables again. <clears throat> and he says to them, guys, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you guys are making it a den of robbers. And at that moment, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and what did he do? He, he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, they didn't say, oh, praise God, our king is finally here. He's cleansed the temple, and now he's filling it with healing. No, they came in, and the children, they heard the children crying, Hosanna to the son of David. They became indignant. They were angry. And they said to them, do, do you hear what these kids are saying to you? And Jesus looks at them, I'll add this in with a smile on his face. And he says, yes. Have you ever read? Oh man, that's good. He's asking the Pharisees if they've ever read the Bible. He says, yes. Have you ever read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing bays, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So Jesus is making a bold statement when he rides in a donkey, but the symbolism doesn't stop there. The first thing he does is he goes in and he symbolically starts cleansing the temple. He literally does it, but it's also a symbolic move. He's literally flipping tables, but, but spiritually he's flipping tables because uh, there is a profound disconnect between what should be happening in the temple and what is actually happening in the temple. The temple should be a place of sacrifice. It should be a place of worship, a place of prayer. And what have they turned it into? A mall. It's a mall. It's an airport where you go and you change money when you get off a flight. It's not a place of worship, it's, it's a place of commerce. And the thing about the place of commerce is that it probably started in a way with good intentions, but it got off track really, really quickly. 
Because what happened is you have people from all over the world who are traveling to Jerusalem to make the great sacrifice. They do it like once a year, this is the big thing. We pack up the family, we've got to go make our family sacrifice. And so you pack up the animals you're going to have for sacrifice and you've got your money from whatever part of the world you're living in. And when you come into town, it makes sense. I've got to change money. <clears throat> well, how about we make it easier on the people who are coming to worship? How about we let them change the money as soon as they get into the temple? They don't have to go over to, you know, uh, around the corner to Eli's shop and get all the, you know, transfer money. No, we can do it right here. And you don't even have to worry about bringing uh, sacrifices with you. We'll raise the animals here and you can just pick of the flock. Do you see where this is going? The purpose of bringing your sacrifice was that it was an actually a sacrifice. It was painful, it was difficult. It's not easy traveling with sheep or a ram, or birds. It's tough traveling with children, but you add animals into the mix? It's a mess. And so it's like, well, let's, the, the argument is, let's make people's worship as easy as we possibly can. Let's take the sacrifice out of it. Let's do everything we can to make sure that when people show up, it's a pleasant experience. So they don't trip over anything and it's, it's a wonderful spiritual experience for them. And so Jesus comes in and he doesn't necessarily have an issue with the, the, the changing of the money. It's where it is. There's a heart behind where it is and that's part of the issue. But you've filled my father's house with a bunch of nonsense, and I can't have that. So I'm here to flip some tables. And when he comes in and he starts flipping tables, he doesn't just end with the flipping of the tables and the casting of stuff out. He immediately starts filling up something else. You see that? He empties this place of the garbage that man has filled it with, but he immediately fills it with the stuff that God wanted anyway. What does he do? He starts healing people. So he drives out the commerce and he drives out the greedy hearts and he fills it with the heart of God and he starts healing people. And guess who else is there? Children. And they're shouting, yeah, it's son of David, this is our king. And everybody's happy except the religious leaders. And what's funny is that the religious leaders were the ones who were tasked to be able to prepare the hearts of the people for this moment. They failed on their job. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, many of them, they, they just gave themselves this position. But they assumed that their responsibility was to raise people up in the ways of the Lord. And one of the greatest things that they should have been doing was preparing the people for when the Lord actually showed up. And the moment he showed up, the people saw it and they missed it. Because they were more interested in keeping the power and the balance of power than submitting to the king who showed up. And I love this story because it parallels what happens today. The truth is that Jesus never stopped cleansing the temple. In 2 Corinthians 6, 16 through 18, Paul tells us that the temple is not a building now, it's us, we're the temple. The Spirit of God resides on the inside of us. We're the temples of God. And so essentially what God did when he cleansed the temple and filled it with healing, that process never stopped. He's still doing it today. He's still cleansing all of the man-made garbage that we set up, all of the poor attempts at worship, all of our love of money. He kicks all of that stuff out and he replaces it with submission and obedience and true worship. And he heals our hearts. Now let's go to verse 18. 
So immediately following this, we're building to something really big here. But Matthew is laying the foundation that the, the religious leaders have failed in their job. And because of that, God has made other plans. Not that God said, well, now we're in a pickle, huh? <laughs> so I gotta go back and rework. No, God knew from the foundations of the earth this was gonna happen, and he made a plan that was always the plan, and it's Jesus. But it's not very pleasant for the religious leaders. So, and this starts building in verse 18. So in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. I can identify with that. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went up to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Whoa, Jesus, it's just a fig tree. That seems really harsh, right? So either this is like, okay, I need to rethink how I think about fruit trees. Or he's saying something more profound here, which he is. But this is what's funny, verse 20, the disciples saw it, they watched Jesus walk up to a tree. Imagine this, you watch Jesus walk up to, to, to a tree and, and look for fruit, and all you see is leaves, and he says, you will never produce fruit ever again. And all of a sudden, as you're watching, all the leaves just kind of shrivel. That's pretty wild, huh? The moment you're, like, that's pretty, you see that and you're like, how did you do that? Well, that was their response. Verse 20 says, they saw it and they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus, how did you do that? And Jesus answered them with a smile on his face. Truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Whoa, blank check, huh? So we can ask for anything? Is that what you're saying? No, he's saying that as your heart starts to change and you grow in faith and you start becoming transformed at the heart level, your prayers start changing. You notice that? When you first get saved, you pray a lot of selfish prayers. But the more you start walking with Jesus, you realize that the things that you thought were important are not the things that he thinks important. And so your heart starts changing and eventually you start wanting the things that he wants. And when you start praying, all of a sudden you're praying his prayers. Look, if you've, you've got children, you, you know that at a young age, <clears throat> they would eat cake for dinner every night of the week if you let them. Right? What do you want for dinner? Chocolate cake, cookies. But you're not gonna answer that and give them that because you know it's not good for them. But eventually they start growing up and they start re, really, <clears throat> excuse me, realizing the value of like, man, physical exercise. And if they're a guy, they're like, oh man, I, I'm, I'm a teenager and I, I can actually eat more protein and I can actually build some muscle. And so when they say things like, uh, can I have a salad for dinner? Yes, you can. <laughs> of course you can. Can I have three chicken breasts? Uh, I guess you can, but it's better than asking for cake. The idea is that as your children start maturing and they start asking for things that are good for them, you have no problem giving that to them. You will gladly say, yes, have more because their heart changed and their ask is online with what is good for them. This is what Jesus is saying. When your faith starts building and you put all of your trust in God that he is who he says he is and he will always be faithful, that reality will shape the way that you start praying and when you start praying the things that he wanted anyway, you're gonna get your prayers answered every single time. Yes. But let's back up to what he's saying with the fig tree. <clears throat> 
We gotta remember that Matthew is including this story for his Jewish audience. He's writing to a, a, a Jewish crowd, Jewish believers in the first century. And it comes right after the temple cleansing. So it comes right after this idea that the, the people are getting it, but the religious leaders are not getting it. And Matthew, all throughout this book, has been quoting Old Testament scripture, so we know that that's in his wheelhouse. What we're seeing here with the fig tree is Jesus acting out a prophecy from the book of Jeremiah, and Matthew doesn't explicitly quote it, but he knows his audience will catch it. Well, we're 21st century Americans, and we don't get it, mainly because a lot of us have not done any uh, decent uh, study of the Old Testament. We've been convinced that we can just unhitch that part of it and just pretend it doesn't exist because it's Old Covenant. Let's just focus on the New Covenant. But we're missing a very rich history with deep roots and fertile soil if we just pretend that that stuff is old stuff we don't need to read. Let me prove it to you. Jesus stands up at this fig tree and he acts out a prophecy from Jeremiah and I want to read the prophecy to you. So just listen to this. I think we'll throw it up on the screen too. This is Jeremiah 8. 5 through 13. Why then has the people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit and they refuse to return. See, I've paid attention and listened, but they have not spoken rightly. No man relents of his evil saying, what have I done? Everybody turns to his own course like a horse plunging headlong into battle. Even the stork in the heavens knows her time, and the turtle dove, the swallow, the crane keep the time of their coming. But my own people, my own people, know not the rules of the Lord. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us, but behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie? The wise men shall be put to shame, and they shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, They have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors. I want you to remember that. That one line as we get into the parable of the tenants in verse 33. Because Israel and and her leaders have wandered so far from the Lord, the Lord is here to act on that. There's a time for judgment. What is the judgment? I'm gonna give their wives to others, their fields to conquerors, because from the least to the greatest, every single one of them is greedy for unjust gain. From the prophet to the priest, everybody deals falsely. Even the people who are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, they're not even shouting unto the right king. They've, they've healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, oh, peace, peace, when there's no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen when I punish them, and they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, and there are no figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Jesus walked up to this fig tree and literally acted out the prophecy of Jeremiah 8, 
because of the condition of Israel. Because historically, all through the Old Testament and all through the prophets, Israel has always been representative of a fig tree. And her fruitfulness are the figs. And this fig tree had the appearance of fruitfulness because it was full of leaves. But guess what? People can't eat leaves. No matter what vegans tell you. The fruit that grows on the tree is for feeding the nations. And the nation, God's nation, had no fruit. Now, just like the past three years, Jesus is making this bold statement and the disciples miss it because they're so fixed on the fig tree. They're like, man, did you see what happened? And Jesus reiterates the message. He doesn't even drive down into what he was saying with Jeremiah. He's like, man, if you missed it, you missed it. But I'm saying a lot more than just cursing the fig tree. I'm saying that what the prophet said about my people is still true and it's time for judgment. So guys, I know you're marveling at the work of this fig tree, but don't marvel at the work. Focus on the faith that produces the work. Because if you have faith, you can move mountains, not just curse fig trees. Now go to verse 23. So at this point he entered the temple and the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, um, excuse me, uh, sir, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered, all right, I, I will also ask you one question and if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Well, like fools, they agreed. And Jesus says, the baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And so they rallied and they discussed, well, guys, um, if we say from heaven, then he'll say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd because everybody thinks that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, um, well, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But he doesn't stop there, he goes in. There's a reason why Jesus wants to tell them ab about the authority that he does. Because understanding authority requires an understanding of what John was talking about. There's a process of repentance that comes with an understanding of authority. And he explains this in verse 28. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he said, okay, I, 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 don't, I don't think I will. I will not do that. But afterwards he changed his mind and he went. So at first he said, no, I'm gonna be disobedient. But later on, he actually did go and work. But he went to the other son, verse 30, and he said the same. And he answered, oh, uh, I, I go, sir. But he never went. He told his, uh, his uh, father that he would, but he never actually went and worked in the vineyard. Which of the two did the will of his father? And he said, well, the first. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Why did he say you did not change your minds? What is it so important about the question of John's baptism? Because John's baptism was one of repentance. You are not okay the way you are, so you need to turn from that and turn to God. 
And that requires not just a turning and a stop doing of the things you used to do, it requires an actual change of mind. That's repentance. I'm changing my direction, I'm changing my heart, I'm changing my mind. I'm doing things differently than I used to. I'm not holding on to the past, I'm repenting and turning from it. Until you understand the principle of turning and repenting, you cannot understand the principle of God's authority in your life because authority starts with repentance. The very act of me saying, I'm going to turn from this is me in a way of saying the way I've been running things, my authority, sitting in the chair, driving the bus, doing the thing, hasn't gotten me anywhere. And so I'm going to turn from my authority to your authority. I'm turning from my way of doing things to the way that you say to do things. So the Pharisees could not possibly understand Jesus' authority because they refused to accept the first principle of repentance. So if you want to understand the principle that Jesus is setting up when he's telling his people and he's telling us about the importance of submitting to his authority, it will make no sense to you until you have first come to the place of realizing that I have to surrender and repent and turn from the idea that I have any authority to make any decisions in my life at all. You are not smart enough to make the right decisions for your life. The best thing that you could do is to turn from your way of thinking and submit to his authority and his way of thinking. And this is the way he's structuring this argument. You can't, you can't continue in your life assuming that everything that you have thought so far you can bring with you when you come to Jesus. You don't get to pack a bag and show up at Jesus' door and say, I'm here to follow you and do things your way, but I also brought all this garbage with me that we're gonna constantly trip over and I'm gonna spend a lot of your time talking about because I just can't let go of it. Turning to Jesus means letting go of all of it because what he offers is infinitely better. Now, he finishes this idea, he kind of, he builds on this concept of the Pharisees missing it. In the last sections of scripture, let's go to 33. He says, all right guys, look, why don't you hear another parable? There was, um, imagine a master of a house who planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it and he dug a wine press in it and built a tower and he leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the, uh, to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. So again, he sent another servant, more than the first one, and they did the same to them. And finally, he sent his own son to them, saying, they'll surely respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, oh, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and give his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And the Pharisees and the Sadducees said, well, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. And they'll let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. And Jesus said, have you never read in the scriptures 
that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and in it, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. You think? Wow, they're finally getting it. And, all they, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Man, what a way for God to express his disappointment in the leadership of the people. God is unbelievably displeased in Israel's working, and it's time for some new workers in the vineyard. Matthew was writing this to the Jewish audience to remind them about the beauty of Gentiles, us, non-Jewish people, being grafted into the family of God and now being fellow workers in the vineyard of the Lord. But I don't wanna camp on that. This is where I wanna finish today, and we're gonna, we're gonna close on this. I wanna zero in on this imagery that he, he brings out in verse, 20, or verse 44. When he talks about God being a stone, and it's kind of building here. He says, first, Jesus is like a cornerstone. When you're building a building, a cornerstone is the first stone that you put down because every other wall is based off of that cornerstone being plumb. If it's in the wrong place, then your entire house is in the wrong place. So based off of where that cornerstone is, this wall is built and this wall is built. It's very important that the cornerstone gets put in the first place, in the right place, because everything else is built on top of that. But he's not just a cornerstone. Jesus is also compared to a cornerstone that was rejected by his own people. Israel did not accept him, so God is now extending the invitation to outsiders. And outsiders, all outsiders, can re react to the stone in one of two ways. And this is, this is what I want to finish on. Outsiders can either throw themselves on the stone, that is Jesus, and be broken, or outsiders can become stubborn and unmovable and be crushed by the stone, that is Jesus. And the point is that there are only two ways to react to Jesus. You either throw yourself on him and be broken in glorious pieces that he will assemble for his purposes or you will become indignant to him and he will crush you. And I'm telling you, it is far greater to be broken than be crushed. So, if you have never ever in your life encountered Jesus, Today is a great day to throw yourself on the cornerstone and be broken into sweet pieces. If you have encountered him throughout your life and have, have a relationship with him and, and, and you've been through a, a relatively dark season, today is a perfect day. There is no better day to throw yourself on the stone that is Jesus and be broken by the rock of ages. But there is one thing that today is not a good day for and that is to become stubborn and indignant and be crushed because your heart is hard to the things of God. Let's pray.
Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.